0: Join Anthony Esselin, John Wark Montgomery, Beverly Yonke, Mark Haltoff, Ryan Anderson, Todd Wilkin, and yours truly for the fall 2018 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference Friday, November 9th and Saturday, November 10th in Dallas, Texas. To learn more, register at issuesetc.org. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. Alright, light episode today. what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward For consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. Now, part of the process of learning sound biblical discernment, if you would, involves learning how to listen to good biblical preaching. Now, I'm not going to say that that's what's going to happen today. I'm going to go off on a little bit of a bunny trail, if you would, talking about uh, the need and the imperative to fight false narratives and the role that false narratives play in deception. So today is a little bit kind of a think-along-with-me episode, but I'm not doing it on radio. This was a think-along kind of concept uh, at uh, the church that I serve, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. So let's uh, get right to it. The name of this episode, Fight the False Narrative. Here we go. All right, grab a Bible, something to write with, and we are going to get started. We're going to go back into the book of Exodus. We've concluded our little mini-series on worship and a look at the historic uh, divine service. If you have not had an opportunity to hear all of the lessons in that lecture, I strongly recommend it. Let us pray, and we will get started today in our study of Exodus again. Help us grow in the knowledge of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to remain firm in the confession of his blessed word. Give us love to be of one mind and to serve one another in Christ. Then we will not be afraid of what of that which is disagreeable, nor of the rage of the arsonist Satan, whose torch is almost extinguished. Dear Father, guard us so that his craftiness may not take the place of our pure faith. Grant that our cross and sufferings may lead to a blessed and sure hope and of the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, for whom we wait daily. In Jesus' name, amen. Are Any questions that came up um, before the sermon? You know, it was an interesting read. You'll note that I took our gospel text and worked it through the details of the crossing of the Red Sea. So again, one of the major s- principles of Scripture is that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is how this works. And then the other key component of understanding the Scriptures is the Scriptures are about Jesus, not you. Jesus has come to solve the problem that we've created. It's kind of a good way to put it. But you know, it, if somebody in need of a Savior is not the solution. Somebody in need of the Savior is part of the problem. So that's the idea. And God didn't send us a life coach. He didn't send us somebody who's going to come and pump you up, like you know, Hans and Franz. He, he sent us a Savior and a liberator. And so the themes then of that gospel text run through Exodus. You can kind of see what's really going on there, and it's vital for a, a proper understanding. So any questions come up from that? No? All right. I always, when there's no questions, I always come to one of two possible conclusions and I leave it kind of as a question mark. Either you totally got it or I totally talked over your head and nobody got it and nobody wants to say anything. So, but that's on you because you had the opportunity to ask questions if it's the second. So I, my conscience is clean. So anyway. (laughs) All right, we're back in the book of Exodus. We, when we left off, we were in Exodus chapter 23. Here's what the Lord then is saying to Moses, Behold, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way, to bring you to that place that I have prepared. Hmm. That I have prepared. You know, Jesus talks that way too. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. You know, uh, in my Father's house there are many mansions. And so Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, is personally working on your new abode if you would. And so here you've got this great theme. And this is another one of these examples that shows us that the story of Exodus, again, is type and shadow. And this is something that we must consider ourselves as a part of. We are part of the Exodus. This isn't their story. This is actually our story. We were not enslaved in Egypt, but we were born enslaved to the devil and to sin and the world's passions. And Christ has liberated, our Passover lamb has liberated us from that slavery. We have been baptized into the Red Sea of Christ's shed blood. And now as we live out our days, as we head towards the Jordan River and the, inherit, the eternal inheritance, the day of our rest, that Christ Himself feeds us with His own body and blood, the man from heaven, because Jesus is the bread of life. That's the idea. So you can kind of see how the themes work. The Old Testament and New Testament come smashing together and find their ultimate fulfillment and proper understanding in Christ. If you—if you, you know, And it takes some time to kind of work that out. Like I said in the sermon though, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you can't understand the stories of the Old Testament apart from Christ. And you can't properly understand Christ's actions Apart from the Old Testament, it all works together. So, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared for you. You think of the—you uh, know—what little we know about angels. Angels are ministering spirits to the to Christians, to believers. And so, even we as Christians, we have angels that God helps us in, on our wilderness wandering. So, pay careful attention to Him. Obey His voice, don't rebel against Him, for He will not pardon your transgression, for My name is in Him. But if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, an adversary to your adversaries. When My angel goes before you and brings you in, brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take away take sickness away from you. Now notice here does God command the children of Israel to coexist with idolaters? The exact opposite. And so it's one thing when the world puts bumper stickers on their vehicles that says coexist, okay? It's one thing when the world says it, but it's a whole other thing when that message makes its way into the visible church, that somehow we as Christians are to consider ourselves just one faith community among other faith communities and that you know that there are many different ways to serve God. Don't be so arrogant as to think that somehow you can know whether or not that Muslim's truly worshiping God or not, or that Buddhist, or that person who's into Hinduism, or that person who's into Wicca. And so this was kind of the major appeal of the emergent church movement, which bought into uh, postmodernism. There was a book written uh, better than a decade ago now by Brian McLaren. And the name of the book was A Generous Orthodoxy. A Generous Orthodoxy. And he was arguing to evangelicals to believe in this idea that somebody can be a follower of God in the way of Muhammad. Or they can be a follower of God in the way of Buddha. And to show that he practiced what he preached, shortly after he wrote the book, Brian McLaren observed Ramadan with the Muslims. Does that sound right to you guys? No, it doesn't make any sense.
1: But I have a question. Sure. When a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever, if they then say... That they believe as we do, and they pray to our God, or they pray to God and Jesus, just like we do. If they are saying that, what are they trying to portray to us?
0: I would argue that they are lying, and they know they are lying. Well,
1: see, the other teachers in the school wouldn't let me go into that classroom. To right. hear this being stated...
0: They catch you out?
1: No, they just explained to me, Janet, it wouldn't be good if you went there and heard this woman
0: speak. Uh, then I would... <laughs> Next time they do that to you, you say, no, it's my duty. No, you know, they already the told
1: to... me what she said, uh-huh. and then they just said, Janet, it wouldn't be good.
0: If you went there. No, it would be very good if you went because... There that, was kids in there. So so that woman's lying. I know, but there was kids... That's a false there. narrative, by the way.
1: Right, so that's what I'm saying. So as they... If, as they portray... They're just like us, mm-hmm. and they pray to our God and to our Jesus, mm-hmm. just like us. And they are out there portraying that to some young
0: minds. Right. So let's 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 talk about this for a second. And I saw this. This is good. This is good that you have your vocation. Hold on to your question or comment, Faith. So here's the idea. That's what we're gonna we're gonna identify as a false narrative. Okay. So here's the narrative. The narrative behind this is, is that you Christians, you people in Western society, need to stop getting so uptight about us Muslims. Because we're just like you. Yeah. We, are, we worship the same God. We believe in Jesus and all this kind of stuff. That is a load, a, literally a load of bovine scatology, okay? best way I can put it. All right? it you know, work, the, work it out. And the narrative itself is the thing you have to go after. And when you hear a false narrative like that, you stand up and you say, What you just said, that whole narrative is factually false. And Muslim, Islam itself teaches that. Okay? This is where a little bit of knowledge of the Quran helps. The Quran teaches that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he is a prophet. Similar to Muhammad, but Muhammad is greater than Jesus.
1: Is Allah the same as God?
0: Technically, no. Alright? Allah is not triune. Yeah, Allah is not triune. To them,
1: not to to us. Yeah, no, the details matter.
0: Because the God we worship is the Holy Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God they worship, Allah, is one God, one person. Okay,
1: that's what what I meant. To, To them, Allah is... God,
0: yeah, yeah. Not so, in the same way
1: that we understand it, though, because right, they would identify us as they as call all gods,
0: right? They so, so here's God. so
1: we're the for for worshiping a Trinity.
0: So and here's and the two. There's two moves to this, by the way. The first is you say that's factually incorrect, and you demonstrate your knowledge of the Quran and quote the Quran back to them, and say the Quran says that Jesus isn't the Son of God, that yeah. God is not triune. and Scripture says, the Bible says, that God is triune and that Jesus is the Son of God. So we do not worship the same God. And now here's the second part of the move. I must surmise that the reason you're saying this false narrative is because you have bad motives. I challenge your motives because somebody who's lying like this cannot be doing so without a good, with, with, with a good motive. You are purposely trying to deceive these people, which means you have an agenda. And say, what is it? Challenge the challenge the narrative. Challenge the agenda. Challenge our authority. Right. Remember, the devil is the father of lies, and when he is lying, he is speaking his native language.
2: Yeah, one of the common rebuttals that you'll hear if you start talking about the Quran and saying, "Well, you're not reading it in its original language; you're reading the twisted English translation."
0: Yeah. Then, then you say so. Then you're saying, if, they, if, that, if that's their defense, well, you don't understand the Quran. So you just ask them. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is a trinity? Yes or no? Stay on point. Yeah.
1: Do you believe that Jesus is God? Because Jesus is the God
3: that we worship. Yeah. If you don't think he's God, we don't worship the Son of God. Exactly. Yeah.
1: The
4: thing is, is that people make the, the argument that, oh, just Allah just means God in their language. Yes. Yeah. So it's the same thing, and it, the details do matter against that. Now, li- listen
0: like, listen to me very carefully on how to how to work against that. When somebody says something like that, it shows that their thinking is very immature. And this is where a little bit of rhetoric might get their attention. You tell that person, you need to grow up. You're being naive. Because that simplistic approach, well, Allah just means God, means you have not put any thought into this.
1: Therefore, obviously the same
0: God. Right. So here's the idea, and blowing up the narrative, it might require you to rattle somebody just a little bit. Not meanly, but firmly basically saying if you what you're saying is so simplistic and naive, you need to grow up. Because you're being immature here. like
4: they think that like God is like this doll, it's like, oh, he just dresses in different clothes and different cultures. And yeah, and there's the narrative. It's the same. The same thing, yes, it's, it's, it's the, you know him in different yep. clothes and different cultures. Yep, it, that's it, the it, narrative, and you basically say that's
0: absolutely false. <laughs> the God we worship does not permit the existence of other idols. Does not present proxy worship to him through other gods.
1: It's not just Islam that does this too. This is actually a very similar uh, narrative that you get when you're discussing Mormonism. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, they're 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 Christians. They're you know just another denomination. It's like. No, one of the basic tenets of Mormonism is that as God is, man can become. Yep. That's not yeah.
0: Christianity. Yeah. So if, when you're dealing with things like this, identify the narrative, factually blow up the narrative, and challenge them where they need to be challenged. Either they are intentionally lying or they're being naive. And you need to challenge them. Okay? Because the agenda behind these narratives is designed at its core to be anti Christian and to keep y'all from telling people the truth. I have a question. Yeah. So there's like going to be a lot of people who will, they will not openly
4: admit, or sometimes they don't you know, believe that, that their agenda, especially like Legends, they're teaching to small children. Their agenda might be we don't want the kids to fight. We want them to believe that they're all in this together. So mm-hmm. if you say my agenda is peace, and it's like I feel like you don't need to get everyone to say we all
1: agree on the same
0: thing in mm-hmm. order for there to be peace. Right. Now let's I, talk about it. to clarify something. Go ahead. They
1: were not teaching. They were not teaching. Okay. It was in the classroom, and the kids could ask any questions that they wanted to ask. Mm-hmm. The one child asked. About your religion is different than ours, and this is where she said no. Yeah. So they were not teaching. It was a question and an answer to, to get to understand the the different kids in our group. Right. She right. was answer to what, what we're like what in what the question. we discussing Yeah, that's great, Janet, It's a good thing you. Uh, The floor recognizes
0: Mr. Mattson. One one way to rebut that would be to say what you are expressing, to that person who said
2: that, you are expressing an American educational perspective. You will never get that answer from a Christian who lives in a Muslim country.
0: Uh, Yeah, good point. Not only that, the Muslims don't treat the Christians in Pakistan like they worship the same God at all. That's a great point. That's a fantastic point. Now, a little bit of a note here. You had talked about the agenda of it being peace. Let's talk about that just for a second because this is a major issue in Western society right now. And the social justice left of both America and Europe are guilty of something that we have to call out. And that is, is that here you've got these large groups of Muslim immigrants and refugees or you know, people coming into different nations, ours as well as Western Europe. And these Muslims do not buy into our values and they are engaging in criminal activity and if you question islam or challenge islam they literally react with the type of force that could get you killed mm-hmm. now and so here's what's happening is is that they are suppressing free speech in these countries and in parts of the united states so that the muslims don't get upset so they're punishing and taking away the rights of human beings in in these nations who are citizens, taking away their freedom of speech because that speech could upset them. And here's the problem. They're punishing the wrong group. You come to our country, my constitution says I have the right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And I have the right to challenge Muhammad and Islam and the behavior of people who are Muslims. And... Nobody can take that right away from me. But if you're going to react to what I'm saying with violence, you're a criminal. This country does not give you the freedom or the right to murder people or behave violently when somebody says something you don't like. What the country needs to do and what Europe needs to do is punish the Muslims. And I know what I'm saying is going to be really explosive. But it's true. If you're going to behave like animals, people who have no control over themselves, who cannot even allow the smallest amount of criticism, no matter how valid, the problem is not with the people criticizing Islam. The problem is with you. You, If you're going to come into our country, you will be a law-abiding citizen. You will go by the rights that we have. And you do not have the right to behave this way. And see, they've got it backwards. The social justice liberals, for the, na- and for the sake of keeping the peace, are punishing the people who are rightly cr- criticizing what the Muslims are doing. That's backwards. You punish the lawless, not the law-abiding. And that's the problem that we're facing right now.
2: One of the deep underlying reasons for this particular, what the motivation behind this type of behavior, at least in regards to protecting People that are breaking the law is actually due to extreme racism and the racism of lower expectations, saying that while well, these people are stupid, they're 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 lesser than us. We can't hold them to our standards of living in a in a, in a society.
1: You can't expect them to not react violently. Yeah, we
0: can. Yeah, we can. Yeah. You know, it, it, Christians learned how to do this a long time ago. Okay, because I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity gets criticized quite sharply. And unfairly within the media. And when was the last time Christians in mass had a big rally and then murdered somebody or raped a bunch of women because somebody said something terrible about Jesus? You think about what happened to those cartoonists in Paris. They had put cartoons out criticizing Muhammad and Islam, they were murdered in cold blood. And the problem wasn't that they spoke; that they criticized Islam. The problem is, is that the Muslims are not held in check and are not punished for their wicked and evil. They're going to have to, if they want to be, if they want to live next to us in our country, then they're going to have to learn that I have rights. I have the right to say that religion is evil, and it's wrong, and it's false, and Muhammad is a false prophet. And you do not have the right to take my life because I said it. Not in this country, baby. Maybe in Libya. Maybe in Pakistan, but not here. It's important to insist that we're not taking away their rights either. Mm-hmm. They can criticize Christianity and the all they want. want. Yeah, it's just equalizing things. Yes, doing. You know, let your reaction be with words, not with violence.
2: Continuing on that, uh, just how when they're from Newark, I remember uh, specifically seeing a video uh,
0: this past Christmas season. It was uh, a wide open mall of, of one of those giant Christmas trees. Yeah. And uh, a group of Muslim men literally got up and started the thing and topped it over because, well. Yeah. Uh, they don't have the right to do that. Yeah. But no one was there just trying to yeah. stop them. Right. They do not have the right to destroy public property that recognizes. The the holiday of Christmas, Christmas. The
4: same way that we can't destroy their mosques.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't burn down their mosques. They don't tear down our Christmas trees. We all get along. Freedom of religion and freedom of speech means that you and I as citizens are not all going to see eye to eye. And that we respect each other's right to say certain things. and And I have a right to disagree with you.
4: Why it's so sad that that kid asked, you know, are, are, we, are we not the same? He was like, no, 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 you're the same. You're the same, really. You really all agree. No, you're not. And then the second that they realize that they don't, how do we react? What do we do? No, 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 but you really all agree. It's all fine. You, in order to get along,
1: you have to agree.
0: No, you, you don't. don't. All right? You don't. Our whole country is based on the idea of differing political ideas and viewpoints and perspectives and solutions.
1: But it's like a Christmas time as the kids are getting on the bus and going, Merry Christmas! Have a wonderful Merry Christmas! I this oh, one kid goes, you can't say that to me. I don't believe in Christmas. And I said, you know what? I said, that's okay. I do." what I said. And because that we are Christians and we live in this wonderful world. That's why you're here. So, and then you get two weeks off of Christmas because I believe in <laughs> Christmas. It's a so, Merry Christmas. <laughs> right. All right. All right.
2: How How far should you take the freedom of speech, though? Should whites be allowed to say the N-word? Should you be able to draw cartoonish figures of...
0: Muhammad, when it's so offensive to the Okay, so let's put this in the perspective of the church first and we'll talk about the state wider. Okay. Within the church, if anybody here is going to be engaging in racial slurs and is looking down on somebody based upon their skin color, they're going to hear from their pastor and call them to repentance. That's straight out sin. We are all made in the image of God, and there is no room for that in Christianity. Period. And we're going to hold that up there with, like, idolatry, murder, and adultery. It's it's up there. Now, in society, in the bigger realm, because our country gives people freedom of speech, if somebody wants to join the KKK and try to convince everybody that everybody who isn't white is somehow inferior to those who are, unfortunately... This country has given you the freedom to do that, and I understand that because you have the freedom to do that, I have the freedom to call you to repent, and I have the freedom to preach the gospel. So, America is purposely set up so that we are a marketplace of ideas. And, you know what? If somebody wants to go out there and convince everybody that being white is what it's all about, and that if you're a different skin color, you're automatically inferior, go knock yourself out. But you're not going to stand before Jesus on the Judgment Day and Jesus say to you, good job. You're probably going to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's sin. It's an egregious sin. But in the marketplace of ideas, so you think right and left-hand kingdom. In the left-hand kingdom, unbelievers, yeah, they can do that. And as citizens, we can say, that's just disgusting. That's absolutely disgusting. But the reality of the situation is, is that much of the talk now about racism the other side is engaging in the same kind of racism while denying that it's racism, which is a straight-up lie. If your your advocacy and your actions to overdo racism are not based on the idea that we are all created equal in the image of God, that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve, and that we are all made in the image of God, If if you're not fighting racism with that underlying premise, but fighting racism with the premise that my group hates that other group, then you're still a racist. And that can, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. And they redefined racism. Racism now is about hatred of another race combined with power. So it's not truly racism unless you're in power, which is nonsense. It's a bogus definition.
1: But it's always been about power if you're racist. It's always going to be
0: about yeah, power. Yeah, always, it always is about power. Right. Racism does seek some type of group power right. <clears throat> based upon an identity, based upon your skin color. But
3: they're saying that if you don't have power, if you're, if you're poor,
0: yeah. if
2: you don't have influence, yeah. then you can't be racist.
0: <clears throat> yeah. So so the idea then is, is the way the liberals have worked it out. They've redefined racism so that the only people who can be racists right now in America are white people. Mm-hmm. This is not true. Here's how they do it. White people oppress minorities, and they have power. Therefore, as a group, they are racist. And then you say African Americans or the Latinos or people from South Africa or whatever. They can't be racist, even if they have a hatred towards white people, because they don't have power. Until they have power, they're not racist. That's that's, that's playing with a funny deck. You're dealing from the bottom here. Right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash Pyro Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pyro Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of this lesson, fight the false narrative. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
2: Presents Church Day Select.
5: I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions, they're just so boring. <laughs> Hey, do you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Most Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Madlibs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? Not if you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But
4: now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord.
5: That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the Biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the verdict Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait. Doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids' twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor.
4: You're not going to get away with this.
5: You can't stop us.
4: We're already in
1: control.
5: Resistance Resistance is futile.
0: for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
3: Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's it's coffee. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out!
0: morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that false narratives are very powerful forms of deception, because they are. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Uh, when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, is made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to uh, make a one-time uh, contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And, of course, if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable, too. Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lesson on Fight the False Narrative. Here we go.
4: When you say something that's offensive to somebody, you know, you technically have every right to say that thing. And, like, if you go around saying the N-word, gonna, there's a social stigma that in and of itself is going to punish you. But you're not going to yeah. have a police officer coming banging down your door saying, you offended them,
0: you're under arrest. Right. And, and the, problem oh, is the, the problem with making an offensive cartoon
4: and then getting killed for it, and then saying the N-word, and then people just look <coughs> at you like, oh, you're, you know, how dare you, that's... You know, that, that's an insult, and you shouldn't be saying that, you know, in polite conversation, something like that. You have the right to say things, but does the government have the right to come down on you and say, you offended them, now you're under arrest. Okay. That's what's happening in Europe. I know, and that's the problem with yes. the No,
0: the you problem is, them, is that is that their behavior in their offense is lawless, and it's not right.
2: Uh, with that, uh, Mark... Uh, in the United States of America, we actually have a very different system than anywhere else in the planet. We have the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, we got ourselves the Second Amendment, and uh, many cases have been pro- brought before the Supreme Court in order to actually bring about a definition of hate speech. And every time... Well, I didn't say you
3: should or shouldn't. I asked the question. No, should no, no, no,
2: no. What I'm, I, I'm, getting, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, it's, um, I'm just saying that uh, we as a nation... We are, the, the Supreme Court has knocked it down and said there is actually no such thing as hate speech. You, you'll hear that word thrown around, around a lot today. So much so that it becomes ad nauseum. Uh, and people will say, well, you can't say these words because that is hate speech to which anyone... The Constitution the Supreme Court says there is no such thing as hate speech. It just isn't. Now, <laughs> But I, I disagree that the cops can't. The you for it. If you are causing public skirmishes or whatever. That's because you're saying that, they have the right to keep the peace and that, take you out of that situation. That's a little different. different. There that's actually are wrong. categories of speech that are technically not protected yeah. by the Constitution. So such as...
4: Con- yeah, like, say, yeah, it, it, just incitement of right.
2: violence to speech yes. is not protected. There are categories that are yeah. not protected. And what about my other issue that should you be allowed to draw cartoonish figures of Muhammad when they find
0: that everybody's offensive as the N-word is to the blacks. The reality is, is that Muslims will not endure any criticism of Muhammad. Think back to, was it the, the yeah, 90s? Then it is
1: wrong, like Mark says, then it is wrong yeah. <laughs> think back
0: to the 90s. You remember, you remember Solomon Rushdie mm-hmm. and the Satanic Verses? Mm-hmm. I mean, that guy, I mean, he practically lived in exile for the rest of his life. And he wrote a book that did, was not salacious, Was not designed to be some kind of a you know a a crass critique of Islam and you know you know throwing poop on the face of him or anything like that. No, it was a solid, well thought out series of criticisms of of Islam, and this and the Muslims literally reacted the exact same way as if you had somehow drawn a cartoon of of Muhammad in drag. It's the same. They will not permit any criticism of Islam. Period. They will not endure it. Which shows me they have no confidence in their religion because we'll take anything. We'll,
3: we'll argue with you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because we know we're right.
0: Right. <laughs> See, that's, that's the issue. Everybody knows this, this fact about, about Islam. They will not allow their narrative to be challenged. You challenge their narrative... At the risk of losing your own life. Period. And here's the thing on our soil, in our country, you don't have that right. Period. You do not have that right. Yeah,
2: just the political cartoons that go back and forth these days, whether you're extreme left or extreme right, are about as offensive to you, those two groups, the yeah. opposite groups, as what was done with the cartoon. But, you know, so far, at least. Yeah. <laughs> at least so far, people are killing each other over it. Yeah. I
0: mean, the last time I checked, I mean, the, the way the, the social justice liberals talk is that somehow there's this underlying right to not be offended. Well, if that's the case, then I, then the whole liberal media has got to go because per- pretty much every day I'm offended by what they say. Literally. I mean, and then every year at Easter time, you know, Newsweek or a major magazine publishes a hit piece against Jesus calling into question the historicity of the Bible. I'm offended by that. How come they're allowed to offend me? But I can't say something educationally critical of Islam or of their ideology. You see, this is not a two-way speech. What they're trying to do is get rid of freedom of speech altogether and their ideology to come in and get rid of our rights. That's their agenda. Well,
1: and you see political cartoons or or different things of very unflattering portrayals of Christ or Christian figures mm-hmm. all the time, especially like Mary gets portrayed in some crazy ways. Yeah. And they have the freedom to do that. Yeah. You, you I'm of offended it, by that. Yeah. You think, think of the, the artist, what was it, an artist, like
0: 25 years ago, you know, a quarter of a decade ago, in New York, in an art exhibit, you know, basically took a crucifix and put it into a you know, a, a see-through vat of urine. And that's supposed to be art. Is that Maplethorpe or something? Huh? Was that Maplethorpe or something like I, f- I forget the name of the artist. Alright, so, okay. What is, all we did was say that Christianity, they got that. Scripture does not have the coexist, I think, idea. And look what we like, where were we? Wow.
2: Okay. Well, I think I think the question about coexistence is whether coexistence meant to mean we got to give you know we can all get along even though we're different, or if it means we're all serving the same God. I think a yeah, is, So here's the deal: if coexist
0: means that you respect the right of your neighbors to believe whatever they want to believe, that's that's a core American value. If coexist means all religions are the same, all God, all, you know all. All religions lead to the same God, or as you had pointed out, God dresses up in different garb. You know, he, he appears to the Muslims as Allah. He appears to you know, people in the East as Buddha. He appears as Shiva and Vishnu, and you know, to those in India and Zeus to the Greeks and things like that. And then, if that's what you mean by coexist, which, by the way, that's the predominant understanding of coexist, then then no, that that's a false narrative we've got to reject. Period. And so this is part of the reason why we, as Christians, preach the gospel to people who believe in other gods. Because we believe they are enslaved to, as Scripture says, no joke, worthless things. Consider the Apostle Paul's actions. Apostle Paul, in Acts 17, fantastic sections. Paul was absconded away because, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this about the Apostle Paul when he preached the gospel in places. Sometimes they headed out for him. They wanted to murder him and kill him. So this is one of those situations where Paul had to leave town because the Jews in Thessalonica, or today's modern pronunciation, Thessaloniki, um, they went after him. So he ended up in Maria and the the Thessalonians kind of fallen there and you know, raised the rabble, so they wished Paul off to Athens, ancient Athens. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Acts seventeen sixteen, the spirit was provoked within him, for he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, some of the Epicurean stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the Resurrection. So you'll know, this is a perfect example, New Testament example, of a New Testament apostle called by Jesus Christ himself, who is not getting along with people who are worshipping false gods. So this is a Christian value, because this is a moral command of God. You will have no other gods before me. First commandment. So, Paul's preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling or hearing something new. <laughs> Sounds like today, right? So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. Now, important point. Paul doesn't go throughout Athens and look around and say, "All right, there's Zeus and there's Athena and there's Mars and Hercules and you know, and then say, you know what? Jesus is a lot like Zeus, so let's kind of find the comparative points and the common ground between Jesus and Zeus. It's not what he does. At all. It's too loaded. So he finds an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. Because the Athenians at this point are kind of hedging their bets. Maybe we didn't know about one. Maybe we forgot one. There's that one out there doing godly things and we just didn't know who it was, so we want to make sure we hedge our bets. And so, if that God ever shows up, we can say, see, we we knew you were out there, you know, to the unknown God. Glad you finally made yourself known. So, here, Paul, kind of capitalizing on that, says, here's the God you didn't know, the unknown one. He happens to be the only one. And the rest of them are false. That's his point. To the unknown God. So what therefore you worship as the unknown, this now I proclaim to you. The God singular. Ha Theos. Ha theos. Singular. The God. He didn't say the gods. And they are all polytheists. Now he's being provocative. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Notice he's going after the whole narrative. They believe in God's plural, and that the God's plural live in temples made by man. The inner sanctum of, like, the temple of Zeus would have have a ginormous statue of Zeus inside of it, in the inner sanctum. And they believe that in some way that this is where he lived and where he dwelled. And so he's taking all of their ideas and just putting C4 on it and just going, and boom, blowing the whole thing up. He does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands. What? the whole temple part of the economy of the Athenians. They have a whole segment of their economy that is based upon this. You know, this idea that we serve God by our human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives him everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind. Does Paul believe in Adam and Eve? Yep. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. So being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So notice, he's calling them to repent of their idolatry. Paul is not coexisting. Paul is evangelizing. And those who are worshipping these false gods need to hear the truth, that they are sinners, that they are idolaters, that the things that they worship are not true, they do not exist, they are the result of the imagination of human beings. Or even worse, demons. And he points them to Jesus And his resurrection from the grave as proof that he is not only God, but that he will also be the judge of the world. Politically incorrect. In your face. He was offensive. He spoke the truth, he did so in love. They didn't compromise the message. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Come on! The dead are not raised. You're a loony!
1: Loony, 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 loony.
0: Right? That's what people do. Others said, you know, we're going to hear you again about this. So Paul went on, out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So note this. Paul preaches the gospel, and now we get a tiny, 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 tiny little church. We know the names of two of them, and there's a few others. It's not impressive. It's not a mega church. But where two or more are gathered in the name of Christ, he's present with them. So the preaching of the gospel, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. The preaching of Christ results in God giving faith to some. And it took a while, it took a while for Christianity to take root in Athens, but eventually it overthrew the cult of Zeus, and the pantheon of the Greek gods. They are a thing of the past, not an ongoing thing of the present. And all of those idols that Paul saw they're either gone or they're in the museum. But they're not worshiped today. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And you know, Paul did not compromise regarding the first commandment. And Christianity is not called to coexist with idolaters, not in the realm of the truth. Love them as neighbors, tell them the truth about Christ. Coming back then. We can get too far in Exodus 7.
1: We have a few minutes.
0: Alright. None shall... Okay, so God makes promises. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do. You shall utterly overthrow them, break their pillars in pieces. And by the way, archaeologically, we know that this is exactly what happened when the Israelis came into Canaan. You shall serve Yahweh your God. He will bless your bread, your water. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Do you imagine having an army of hornets That'd be cool <laughs> <laughs> That would just be cool because like hornets like scare me to death. I will not drive I will not drive them out before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before it, and shall drive them out before you. You're going to notice the original boundaries that God's talking about a lot bigger than the postage stamp-sized thing that we see in uh, in our world today. You shall make no covenant with their gods; they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, I will surely it will surely be a snare to you. So, God and other gods do not get along. Then he said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with you. So here, a little bit of a note. um, There is a time when Jesus sends out Seventy? Seventy. since sends 70 out it teaches them how to evangelize. I think that it's a correlation between the 70 who go up on Mount Sinai and this 70. I haven't quite worked it out. But the numbers are identical, and there's some kind of a way it works, but I haven't sorted it out. Sometimes you have to work on the typology a little bit. And when you work out biblical typology, it's often a good idea to look at the Old Testament details, look at the New Testament details, and then do what that wonderful old children's television show used to do, Blue's Clues. Yeah, you know, we are looking for Blue's Clues. Guess what i Right. He would collect up his little things, and what would he do? He would go to his thinking chair. Right. So, in working out typology, you work, take the little details, and then go to your thinking chair and kind of work them out. See if you can sort, sort through them. That's kind of the idea. So, I'm, I'm convinced that this, the seventy elders and seventy that Jesus sends out. There's some correlation, but I haven't done enough time on the thinking chair to work it out. There may be other passages that need to be brought to bear, but I'm just saying there's something there. Alright, so Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the other shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now remember, God has given them the Ten Commandments, and done so with a thundering voice from the top of Mount Sinai, with smoke and fire and all this kind of stuff. Yes,
1: Ark of the Covenant almost like when the when the Holy of the, the Holy folies, when the one the high priest could go near the it's, also it's yeah,
0: there. it's kind of similar to that in that sense, but we haven't we haven't got the priesthood yet. And Moses technically is a prophet at this point. Yeah. So he's kind of the first prophet. But yeah, there's something here, just not sure what. Still still kind of working the typology, but if anyone wants to kind of. Kind of work the Rubik's Cube on this typology. It does take a little bit of work. Alright, so Moses came, told all the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules. All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Now, a little bit of a note, spoiler alert, I'm going to remind you of something that's going to happen very shortly. So they said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. How long did it take for Moses to be gone before they built the golden calf? It wasn't very long. Moses wasn't gone for that long. So yeah, maybe a month. Okay, maybe not even that long. Because then, you know, Moses came back down what, 40 days? Yeah. So, how long
4: do you think it takes to melt all that gold?
0: Yeah. It didn't take long at all. So here, here's the idea, and you're going to know, how many times have we heard, you shall not worship other gods, you shall not make a graven image, you shall to bow down to it. you shall not worship, I will not, no, they, do not worship other gods. Over and over and over. God has said this in multiple ways, multiple times. What's the first thing they do as soon as Moses is out of their sight for just a little bit of time? They create an idol. Yeah. So this is this, this is this is really interesting. But here we've got them saying, we're going to do these things. No, you're not. So Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent the young man to the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, half the blood, threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Uh, Perjured themselves. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And we remember the words in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And this is something, like one of the major themes you're going to see from in this section of Exodus. There's a lot of blood. There's like blood everywhere. In each text. Here we've got the people being sprinkled with The blood of these sacrifices. And I'm thinking, man, I just washed this thing. And now there's blood all over it. Wait till we get to the vestments, to the priestly garments, and all the blood involved in their ordination service. I mean, there's just blood rolling everywhere. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this blood all has to do with, well, atonement. Getting right with God. So then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the seventy elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. There it was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. They ate and they drank. So we know what he was standing on. His face isn't described, so we can see the feet of God. <laughs> yeah. You know? And, and what he's standing on, you see kind of again pictures of similar things in the book of Revelation, which is fascinating. So the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stones of the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So this is kind of an important thing, and I'm going to point this out, is that God himself has called Moses up to the top of the mountain for the purpose of writing in stone the commandments. Good way to think of it this way. Moses, up to this point, how much time has he had to you know, write things? Zero. like Almost no time to write nothing. And so you go from him being commissioned, sent to Egypt, ten plagues... Then you've got the whole Red Sea incident. Everyone's on the other side. You've got manna coming from heaven, split rock before Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments being spoken by God verbally. And now God says, come up here. And so the good way to think about this is is that God Himself, by writing the Ten Commandments on stone, those two tablets are the foundation stones, or the cornerstone, of the Bible itself. God wants to be the guy who gets the ball rolling on the writing of the Bible, because up to this point, you could not go to a store and buy any books of the Bible. Genesis hadn't even been written. And so the very first thing written down in the Bible is written by God, it's the Ten Commandments written on stone. So whenever you see, you know, that iconic picture of Charlton Heston, you know, with the two stone tablets, right? Think of those two stone tablets. That's the, the that's the cornerstone of the Bible. God kicked off the writing of the Bible by writing the Ten Commandments on stone. You see it? It's a good way to think of it. So, God's come on up here. I'm going to give you the stone tablets with the law, the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua. I love- <laughs> I love the fact, and this is kind of one of the little things here. You're going to see this, just this mention. Over and again, Joshua is mentioned. Joshua. So Moses went up. His assistant's name is Joshua. What's Jesus' Hebrew name? Yeshua. Yeshua. Same as this guy. Yeshua, Joshua, that's the same. Actually, everyone would have pronounced him Yeshua. So I love the fact that Moses' assistant the understudy at this point, is Yeshua. Because when Jesus is growing up, and His mom says it's time for dinner, she'd call up, Yeshua! Yeshua! Time for dinner! Right? And so here's the funny thing. In type and shadow, Jesus is there, waiting in the wings. You ever thought about that? Do you think it's, it's a co No, it's not a co winky at all! The fact that Moses' assistant is named Yeshua, which is the exact same name of Jesus, kind of shows that, you know, that's just a little cue to you, pay attention. Moses' assistant eventually is going to be the guy in charge. And he's there the whole time. So Jesus is there in type and shadow with Moses' assistant, Joshua. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua. Moses went up into the mountain of God, And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So then Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain inside of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. How many days did it rain in the flood? 40 okay. days. 40 nights. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, how long was he out there? 40 years. How long were the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness? 40 years. 40 years. That's 40 things. You see, they're kind of all interconnected, but we'll leave it there for right now. And uh, pick this up. this morning, So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian.